Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Let's pray. Lord God, our hearts are prone to wander from you and from the burning center of your truth made known to us and to the world in Jesus. Help us now in these moments, clear our minds, calm our hearts. Help us to be captivated once again by your gospel, that we might be changed into your likeness and bear witness to your presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bibles. It's page 961 in the Pew Bible or in the uh, Red Bible there you have in front of you. And if you're a history buff or a preacher like myself, you can't, you can't help yourself when you see a text like this. You have to, despite our beautiful and uh, imaginative and, and exciting gospel passage where Jesus calls the first disciples in that incredible account, we have to go here to 1 Corinthians 15 because y'all, we're all into the early church in the Anglican tradition, right? Well, this is the earliest creed of the early church. And we have it right here before us in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's visit to the city in Corinth was only a little over 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And scholars believe that this passage here, because of its kind of formulaic and, and its uh, agreed upon nature, that we have a text that was probably in circulation just a couple of years, two or three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So for 20 years, this had been in oral tradition, and now we see it in print for the first time, attested in ancient literature. And we have it for us, the earliest creed, doctrine that's also scripture. Like I said, a preacher can't resist. So let's dive into this. The apostles preached this message. It was kind of a bullet point summary of Jesus' life and ministry. And what happened when this message was preached was that the power of the Spirit was unleashed in the early churches. Yet... Just a few years after this church's founding, after Paul planted this church, some old problems typical of this Las Vegas of the ancient world, typical of the city of Corinth, some old problems began to resurface. So it turns out, I don't know if you knew this, turns out you can hear the gospel, you can even receive it. But after a few years, because you have not fully internalized, metabolized, incorporated, or as Paul says, stood on these truths, built your life on them, lived them out on a day-to-day -day basis, it can have terrible consequences in your life, just even after a few years. Does that sound familiar to any of your lives or, or my life? That we know the truth, but yet when we don't live it out, we reap what we sow, don't we? So, what is today? This is the annual meeting Sunday, right? We're going to have a meeting after the church. Hip, hip, hooray. 
It's exciting. There will be birthday cake. But it seems to me that on this occasion, celebrating the 15th year of our founding, it would behoove us to listen to the Apostle Paul here on what he says was of first importance. Amen? These are not mere theological statements. Some of you might say, oh, doctrine, uh, creeds, boring, yawn. These are not mere uh, theories. These are personal truths that if we receive them will set our hearts on fire, will rekindle the flame of faith. So let's look now at the passage briefly. We're just going to walk through it. We're going to take a little ancient tour through Corinth. Uh, not really through Corinth, but through the first few verses of chapter 15. And then we're going to dive in to see, okay, what, is this, what does this mean for us? Okay? Verse 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, by which, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received. This is so encouraging to me because today we have lots of innovators and creators and folks who want to say, well, that's great what you think, but I want to put my spin on it. I want to do what I feel is right. And this is beautiful because Paul says, I didn't create this. Paul is not starting something new, he's not innovating. He's joining an existing movement begun by God, passed down through Christ and his apostles. The gospel is not something we innovate. Yes, there's lots of iterations and 2.0s and 3.0s and iPhone 10s that come out, and that, that's great for what it's worth. But we need something rock solid to build our lives on. The gospel is not something we innovate. It's something that we discover, that at times we need to excavate but we see the bedrock truths again and again. We see the power when it was first proclaimed and we discover its power to each successive generation again and again. So what was that gospel, that good news? Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Sometimes us preachers and theologians overcomplicate things. This is absurdly simple. And at the same time, the most profound mystery in the universe. Christ died for our sins. Sinful people, sinless Savior. Trading places exchanged, sins atoned for, sinners now experience in Jesus atonement at one mint with God. In Christ, we are reconciled and brought at one, at peace, in union with God. That's amazing. Can you hear that? Christ died for our sins. Now, some people get tripped up on the atonement, especially in modern theology. There are 
Now, various theological angles throughout church scripture taken on how the atonement actually occurred. But the fact is, the main thing is, at one has occurred. Now, you can describe it in different ways. It's like a, a diamond that you can turn and see different facets. But the main thing is, we are now at one with God through Christ. Now, some of these problems come from people not understanding the Trinitarian nature of the atonement. They say, well, God must be this angry uh, appease, you know, person that needs to be appeased by this third party in Jesus, who is an unwitting victim. But, my brothers and sisters, you do not understand the Trinity if you see the atonement like that. Jesus is himself in the Father, Jesus says. I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, only begotten, eternally preceding, uh, eternally begotten of the Father. And so when Jesus in the flesh goes up on Calvary, it is God himself offering his life to us, his perfect sinless life. In union now with humanity in the flesh, Jesus bridges the divide between God and man. But in Jesus, it, it is no third party appeasing an angry father. It is God's very life being offered to us. So Christ died for our sins. Verse 4, he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Hear that cadence, in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. This has been planned from long ago. Again, not innovated, but excavated, discovered. As evangelicals in this evangelical tradition, we, in our desire to get the atonement right, sometimes focus all our attention on the crucifixion. And we forget that it means nothing unless Christ is raised from the dead. In fact, Paul says later, that Jesus rising from the grave completed the action of the atonement. He said, and if Jesus Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 17. Jesus' resurrection vindicates that the offering of his sinless life was accepted by the Father on our behalf. It is finished. And when he raised broke from the ground, never to die again, our sins were buried with him. Death and the power of the enemy was broken. It means that the entire course of history was changed in our day-to-day -day lives with it. It means we have new life, but more on that in a minute. Look at verses 5 through 10. Now we get to the appearance narratives. We see Christ has died according to the scriptures. Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, Aramaic for Peter, and then to the twelve. Now listen to all these appearances. Seems like Jesus is trying to make a point here. <laughs> then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So Peter, then the twelve, then 500, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's early church language for some have died, but not really. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, bigger group than the twelve. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why spend so much time on the appearance narratives? Let's not overthink this. 
because he was really alive. This wasn't a joke. This wasn't a game. You can go ask Joe over there, Paul says. There's some folks, you can, you can ask their relatives, you can even ask themselves. Some are still alive. We're not making this up. This really happened. Verse 11, Paul says, So we preach and so you believed. Now, like us, the Corinthians did not encounter the risen Lord like all these other people listed here. They did not encounter the risen Lord firsthand. They were not eyewitnesses. However, as Paul makes clear in this letter and in other places and even, I think, in this verse, the preaching of the gospel itself was not a dead letter, was not void of power, but was itself an encounter with the risen Lord. <clears throat> By the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word, through this gospel, through these words, Jesus made himself manifest and appeared to the early churches. And if you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel and responded to it, that same spirit, that same person who mediates the risen Lord has appeared to you. You may not have been there the first few days in Jerusalem, but the Spirit has mediated that same powerful presence to you in calling you to Himself. It's the same God. So now, what are some ways we can apply this gospel today, these gospel truths to our hearts? I'm going to focus on just a few personal applications and focus on the cross and resurrection. So, first, the cross. Christ died for our sins. Application, gospel truth instills in us a bedrock identity, a solid identity that's both communal and interpersonal. Okay? So first, communal. How is our identity solid, made solid through this communal understanding of Christ dying for our sins? Now, as moderns, we tend to think of ourselves first as individuals, right? And second, as individual members of particular groups, still kind of individuals. Americans, Anglicans, Republicans, Democrats, etc. Ancients thought of themselves in terms of, first, their community. as part of a socially embedded group. So when Paul says Christ died for, what? Our sins. He's telling the Corinthians and Christians ever, everywhere that whatever their previous group identity happened to be, they are now fundamentally part of a new community. Namely, those who have been forgiven. Those who are in allegiance with Christ, whose allegiance has shifted from Satan and his dominion to Christ and his kingdom. It is saying that, hey Corinthians, though you're part of an influential city in the Roman Empire, really your home is in Zion. This is crucial for us today. This communal identity can give us solidity and assurance in a culture that is divided, polarized, that is reaching for certain group identities. Your primary identity is not that of a political party. Your primary identity is not that of a particular generation or group affinity. Hey, I, I'm someone who likes to, uh, you know, eat at Wendy's, not McDonald's, right? No. And although God places us in families with certain ethnic heritage, your primary identity is not even your nationality or ancestry. 
We have Caucasians, we have Africans, we have Caribbeans here. But y'all, our primary identity is found in the New Jerusalem. It's found there with all those who reside in God's presence in Zion. Our identity is communal, but also interpersonal and personal. So when you see someone, what is the first thing you notice? When you see yourself in the mirror, what characteristic are you most proud of or ashamed of? This verse, this gospel truth that Christ died for our sins tells us that when God looks at you, he sees one who is worth dying for. You are one for whom Christ died. You are one for whom Christ died. We embrace this truth, this key element of the gospel message that Christ died for our sins. How would it affect our sense of identity? How would it impact the ways we try to prove ourselves to others or to God with our public performances, our achievements, our social media posts, our humble brags? And if we embrace this truth, how would it impact the way we love our neighbor, the person at the table next to us in the coffee shop, our, our server? What if we were to look at a neighbor or even a stranger and think in our first thought about them? You're one for whom Christ died. That's exactly what the scriptures do. In fact, three chapters before, you don't have to turn there, but 8.11, Paul says, in terms of the Corinthians' behavior, by your knowledge, you're destroying the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died. You are one for whom Christ died. Y'all, if we embraced this and made it part of our bedrock identity, we would be those who can carry the love and presence of Christ in a confident, in a non-anxious way to the world. We might even fix the problems of social media. Gospel truth gives us a bedrock identity. When you see, when you make a comment on social media, you're not uh, um, seeing someone as, as part of a filter of a political party or of a certain tradition. You're seeing them as someone for whom Christ died. This is a rock-solid foundation to build our lives on. Secondly, we have the cross and the foundation it gives us. The resurrection infuses our day-to-day -day living with the possibility and power of His living presence. The resurrection infuses our day-to-day -day living with the possibility and power of Christ's living presence. Let me ask you a couple reflection questions that might diagnose uh, some ways we're not appropriating this truth. Number one, do you tend to live in a state or in a spirit of condemnation toward yourself or towards others? I know I do many times. And if you, like me, do this, we may be implicitly denying the truth of our co-crucifixion with Christ through your baptism. You are forgetting that you have been baptized into Christ's death where sin has been cut off, killed. Your sins are buried. They're dead. The old has gone. Do you believe that? Or do you 
constantly try to make up for that feeling of guilt or shame in your life. Constantly try to cover your sins with, with something. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. That's, that's a radical statement. And he, it's true of all Christians. He's speaking universally that if you are in Christ, you have been crucified along with him. Secondly, do you tend to live in a state of hopelessness or a, a sense of isolation or distance from God, disconnected from his power? If so, you may be denying the truth of your co-resurrection with Christ. We talked about your co-crucifixion and the fact that your sins have been cut off, have been buried in the ground. But we've also been resurrected with Christ through our life in him, through our baptism. Jesus' resurrection is not only proof that he's alive, but it's also a sign to us that we have access right now by faith and through our union with him in baptism. We have access right now to his powerful resurrective life. His life inside us right now. I'll quote Galatians 2.20 again. I have been crucified with Christ. He goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The resurrection means that not only will one day you be raised to new life, you will be given new transformed bodies in Christ, but that you also have access to his new life, his new creation, beginning right now. If any man or woman is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, behold, new creation. So the gospel instills in us a rock-solid identity. It infuses us with power, the power of Jesus' resurrected life for our day-to-day -day living. And finally, and in closing, the gospel announcement invites us to join in on and continue this story. The gospel is participatory, y'all. Did you hear that? So we preached, Paul says, and so you believe, Corinthians. And because of the Corinthians passing on of the faith, because of the faithful apostles and Christians that have gone before us, the gospel has come to us, and so you have believed. Someone preached the gospel to you. Who was that in your life? Was it parents? Was it someone in school, at work? Somehow the gospel came to you. And now you believed and you've been caught up in this story. And now the gospel is called to go through you to successive generations, to the next generations, to the world. In reading those exciting stories in Judges and Matthew, these call, the calling of Gideon and the callings of the disciples, do you ever get a little envious? God, why, why didn't you appear to me like an angel? Or why didn't you flood my boat and I was overcome and awestruck at your presence and just fell down at your feet and then sent to be a fisher of men. Well, the fact is, that same calling has happened to us. And it happens to us every week on Sunday mornings. Did you hear the Eucharistic echoes in Judges? I'm taking some early church allegorical 
uh, liberties here, but what was the meal? There was a meal that took place in Judges with Gideon and the angel. What were the elements of the meal? Unleavened cakes, a sacrificial animal, the broth, the life of the animal poured out on the meal. And when the presence of God touched it, it was consumed. It went up. Now, every Sunday morning, we come to the manna, the unleavened bread, the body of Christ. Every Sunday, we come to his life poured out. This is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. We have unleavened bread. We have the life poured out. We have the sacrificial lamb. We are not only fed with this feast in the, at the table, the bread and the wine, but then we become, as we receive and partake, we actually are changed into and nourished by and now strengthened to be the body of Christ for the world. We become broken bread and poured out wine in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our homes. The gospel and the church invites us to receive the very life of Christ by faith and to become little Christs to the world. Inviting people to the great feast and giving them a foretaste of the heavenly banquet through our work in the world, through our lives, through our witness together as Christ's body. So let us hear and receive and stand once again, stand on and stand in the gospel this morning. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.